2: President Trump has the opportunity to reshape the Federal Reserve. Many people are concerned uh, that he will compromise the Fed's independence uh, our next guests argue that that independence is a myth to begin with i want to bring in sarah binder professor of political science at george washington university as well as mark spindel founder and chief investment officer at potomac river capital uh, both based in washington dc co-authors of the new book the myth of independence how congress governs the federal reserve sarah i want to start with you can you just explain why it is a myth that the Fed is independent and how so many people uh, believe this myth.
3: Well, First, uh, thanks for having us. Uh, it is a widely held notion, certainly outside the Fed, uh, that Congress created the Fed and then threw away the key. It gave it autonomy to set interest rates and control monetary policy, and then Congress turns the other way, right? The, the argument is that in exchange, Congress conducts oversight and tries to hold the Fed accountable for meeting the goals that Congress gives it. Uh, we find, though, in looking at both the history of the Fed and contemporary f- the Fed, that there's a relationship between Congress, the boss, and the Federal Reserve, uh, and that both depend on each other, right? We call it interdependence. Congress needs the Fed to do a good job, control the economy, and to have someone to blame when the economy sours. At the same time, the Fed needs Congress, right? Congress, the Fed wants to protect its powers, but it needs support. It needs political support when it makes tough policy choices. Otherwise, Congress will reopen the Federal Reserve Act and possibly take those powers away or give it more powers that the Fed might not want to have.
1: Mark, why don't you come in on this and offer your thoughts? Uh, obviously, you must have something that is uh, sympathetic to uh, what Sarah is saying. But uh, is there any
4: doubt that this was ever so? Uh, I think so, and and I think that myth was really propagated in the markets. Uh, you know, part of the the genesis for this project stretches back a, a decade. Um, at the time of the TARP uh, TARP legislation, torpedoing. I think Sarah and I began to talk about the possibility that Congress would reopen the act. And I think in that, uh, what we discovered a reasonably recurring feature of the Fed's relationship with Congress and Congress's relationship with the Fed, that had enormous implications for the way that Congress and the Fed could shape the outlook for markets, the economy, and monetary policy. And I think beginning to factor in the kinds of political risks that we saw at the heat of the crisis, and I think in the in the 10 years hence, has really been a feature of trying to understand uh, the outlook for uh, for the Fed, for monetary policy, and for markets indeed.
2: I'm wondering, Sarah, you know, is this something that always has been the case where there has been this incredibly political element or has it gotten more so as the Fed has engaged in all of these unconventional policies and taken more control over the economy? And I just want to add, you know, in previous years, Obama, for example, uh, former President Obama appointed Ben Bernanke, who was originally appointed by George W. Bush. So this was a bipartisan type of uh, arrangement, and it seemed to be an endorsement of just sort of keeping the status quo quo. Now we're seeing something different. Can you weigh in? Have we seen a shift?
3: Uh, sure. Well, this relationship, the interdependence, has been there back to the beginning, back to the early 1900s. But what's changed here is really at least twofold. First, the Fed as a far more powerful institution over over that century because of the powers Congress has in repeatedly and the responsibilities Congress has given to the Fed. So the Fed is vastly more important, and the U.S. as a global su- economic power is vastly more important than it was a hundred years ago. But partisanship in Washington. Washington is also uh, far more uh, polarized today than it than it has been in the last 30, 40 years. You add that up, and what do you get? Right, it's crystallized in the Trump nominee uh, last week. Right, as you said, for several several decades, sitting presidents. When faced with the opportunity to reappoint the incumbent chair to a second term, who was appointed by the other party's president, has gone ahead and made that essentially bipartisan appointment. That was ruptured last week uh, with Trump nominating Jay Powell, who's pretty close, I think, to the current chair, Janet Yellen, in terms of monetary policy, at least in terms of their votes. But that appointment really ruptured this image of this bipartisan Fed, this technocratic Fed. And now with Trump, right, he can make up to three, maybe even four appointments to the board in addition to the two he's the one he's made and one he's about to make. Um, that, That uniformly changes, will change the makeup of the Fed in a way that the framers of the Fed back in the early 1900s never envisioned one party having that much influence over the makeup of the board.
1: I'm just wondering if both of you all, uh, see this as something that is just specific to the Federal Reserve or other government institutions. I think of the U.S. Supreme Court, for example, Sarah or well, Mark, whatever you you choose. Who's going to answer that one?
3: <laughs> sure, it's, it's it's certainly the case that the the Fed's not the only political institution with uh, norms and statutes that protect independence. I think what's unique here is the, the Fed is a unique uh, body here. It has far more influence over the economy than any other of the myriad independent agencies with economic Powers, right? It,
4: well- yeah, and and I think it's uh, it's important to understand the political similarities, but I think the economic differences between uh, the impact that the Federal Reserve can have uh, on markets, on on the economy versus uh, versus the court. Uh, although I think, PEM, it's a it's a, it's an interesting question and an analog that we looked at uh, in trying to understand the nature of of the politics, and and I think that goes back to. Thinking about monetary politics revealed this myth.
2: Mark, I, I want to get your perspective as a longtime investment manager. I mean, if we are getting a mo- more polarized backdrop to the Fed, which is already a political animal, as you sort of described, I'm wondering, Mark, how that affects investments going forward. Does this give uh, more reliability to the Fed, less reliability? I mean, how do you navigate that?
4: So I think uh, I think the selection process, which, uh, for lack of a better word, seemed weird, um, but did result in an institutionalist, uh, we uh, we uh, assume a confirmation of uh, of Jay Powell, Chairman Powell, will follow very much along the the monetary contours that uh, Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen have put in place, and I think uh, motivating uh, Yellen. Uh, to uh, to institute the balance sheet, unwind the uh, kickoff of monetary tightening, I think is very easy baton for uh, for Jay Powell to pick up. That said, um, we we recognize that the last two downturns in the US have really been financially uh, financially led. Uh, the the certain uh, certainly the global financial crisis revealed, Uh, a a, a sort of range of issues regarding macroprudential and uh, supervision and regulatory issues where the Fed is really the uber regulator. Uh, and I think as we think about not just Jay Powell, but the whole complexion of the board, I think where we are uh, really paying a lot of ten- uh, attention, and as an investor, the financial sector obviously is uh, is integral, is how that, uh, how that shakes out. Thank you very much. Uh, Mark Spindell is uh, a uh, co-author, along with Sarah Binder, professor of
1: George Washington University, of the new book, The Myth of Independence, How Congress Governs the Federal Reserve. You're listening to Bloomberg. The Murdoch family break up Fox. It's a question that uh, is on every media mogul's mind today. And here to help us understand why they might break it up and who might purchase it is Porter Bibb. He is the, uh, well, I guess the founder of Media Tech Capital Partners. And he joins us now. Porter, always a pleasure. Uh, I think of you as a kind sort of media guru. If someone came to you and said, boy, uh, there is a. Uh, a, a you know, movie production facility and television production house that may be up for sale, and it's called 21st Century Fox. Uh, Would that be of interest to you? Why would you be interested in perhaps buying it?
5: It, I'd be keenly interested in buying it, as are a lot of other people in the media business, because Fox has a terrific array of assets that are are firing on all cylinders right now. Uh, They have a global franchise but they also are very, very undervalued as a public company.
2: So uh, let's talk about this. There was uh, reports yesterday that Disney was in talks to acquire some of the assets from 21st Century Fox. Uh, We're getting subsequent reporting showing that those talks have ended uh, with no deal. But this has opened up the door for 21st Century uh, to start selling off pieces of its vast network. And I'm wondering, which assets in particular do you think are uh, most vulnerable to being sold off or, or the right? As candidates uh, for for being uh, for being auctioned,
5: well, D- Disney wanted to buy everything except the Fox News, Fox Business, and Fox Sports, le- leaving uh, uh, Mr. Murdoch and his sons with a news and sports uh, empire of some consequence. But all of the pr- TV production, the the cable networks, the 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 thirty nine percent interest in B Sky B. Uh, all all of those assets were of vital interest to Disney. The problem that that, uh, that Disney has is that they're they're low ball payers. Bob, Bob Iger has uh, been very scrupulous about never overpaying for any acquisition that he's acquired, and Rupert Murdoch is on the other side of the table and has never ever uh, been willing to sell anything that he owns uh, at, at a, a bargain basement price. So there are going to be other people. I, I, I think the issue here is Disney came to, to Murdoch um, not knowing whether or not he was a seller. A lot of uh, uh, speculators have said that Rupert Murdoch and his sons basically said the scale is too big a hurdle for Fox, so we're going to start to slim down and keep the assets that we want. He, he needs to have as long as Mr. Murdoch is co-executive chairman of the company, the Fox News and Fox Business, those, those are his key assets. He's politically connected, politically involved. He talks to the president almost every day, and he's not about to sell those assets. That, that's the legacy that he wants to have um, after 50 years of building a media empire. But the other assets are really valuable, and there are going to be a lot of people beyond Disney come knocking.
1: Well, Porter, uh, I was looking at the numbers, right? And uh, 21st Century Fox stock was $32 a share. That was uh, last spring. Now it's at $28. It's got a $51 billion market cap. Uh, Have you been able to do a sum of the parts? I mean, you know, what are the divisions worth? 20th Century Fox film, you've got the television business and so on. What what do you think is a a going price for this?
5: Well, we're... (laughs) it's not just a going price. It's what people are willing to pay. Um, one of, one of the most interesting buyers standing in the wings right now is uh, AT&T. Their deal with Time Warner, an $85 billion deal looks like it may not happen right now. They. the, the the, the rub is that the, the president and CNN are at, at daggers drawn, and uh, President Trump has asked the Justice Department to do a new review of that transaction. Uh, Fox, the assets that Disney wanted to buy from Fox and that Rupert Murdoch was willing to sell would be exactly what at and could Use and and in terms of evaluation, uh, Fox does not break out all of the numbers of the different entities that that are are under 21st Century Fox. But I think you're looking at it somewhere in the the same valuation uh, as as the uh, the the Time Warner deal would be for for AT&T, somewhere in the in the 60 to 75, million dollar billion dollar range.
2: Porter, I'm wondering what this, uh, these discussions mean for Fox's proposed acquisition of Sky Networks. I know that uh, European, uh, re- British regulators are still reviewing that transaction, and it seemed as though uh, Rupert Murdoch was willing to ditch that deal in order to sell most of the assets to Disney. Does that mean uh, that he's rethinking this deal or that it's on shakier ground at this point?
5: Uh, I think uh, the latter is what what really caused Rupert uh, to sit down and, and talk to Disney about selling Fox assets. Uh, just in the last several weeks, the British regulators have decided that uh, they have to take another look at at, uh, at Fox's uh, attempt to buy the, the the majority interest that they don't now own in B Sky B and it is not a question of whether there would be too much consolidation of power in one media company. It really was an issue of uh, whether or not, in the British vernacular, uh, Fox is a fit and proper person to control a media asset like B-Sky-B. B- and re- the, 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 the most recent uh, problems that they've had with the, uh, on the sexual molestation issue, uh, and, and a lot of that is still ongoing. There, There's litigation in the U.K. as well as in, in the U.S. Uh, that caused the government to, uh, in, in London to say, we have to look at this all again. And there's a, a major long-term review that probably right. is going to come out negative against uh, Fox. So, so Rupert is- said, let's start to bail out.
2: Well, uh, we will be following this. Porter Bibb, thank you so much, as always, for joining us. Porter Bibb is managing partner of Media Tech Capital Partners in New York, also the first publisher of Rolling Stone magazine. This is Bloomberg.
6: The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th,
2: When I think of debt negotiations, I don't think of a... Cartel, a drug cartel. I think of office rooms where people in ties or people who are wearing, you know, suits sit around and talk about how to restructure debt. That is perhaps not going to be the case in Venezuela because uh, the president of Venezuela just appointed a drug kingpin to lead the renegotiation of the nation's debt, which is sort of a mystery as to exactly how much there is. Anyway, Uh, but here (laughs) to understand exactly what this means for the negotiations that affect a lot of big money managers in the United States is Damien Sassauer. He's a fixed income strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence with a deep uh, knowledge of emerging markets over time. Damien, what was uh, Nicolas Maduro the uh, head of Venezuela thinking with this appointment?
7: Yeah, Nicolas was thinking about uh, getting reelected next year. So, I mean, effectively, what what he did by by announcing that the negotiations would be run by Al-Asami, who who is the the drug uh, the drug kingpin you're alluding to, he's an OFAC member. He's been sanctioned by the government. Technically, U.S. creditors cannot negotiate with him. It's illegal. So, what he's effectively doing is forcing um forcing effectively creditors to well, basically they're going to go into default it's a, it's a given now because you can't talk to somebody like that you can't deal with them and more importantly he's doing this because the bonds um that are held by US creditors are you know they're effectively you know down here at 20 cents on the dollar they could go as low as 10 cents on the dollar he really doesn't care he's just basically trying to solidify his power base ahead of next year
2: so i i'm so, so okay Let's back up. Let's talk about the fact that many, many money managers, the biggest ones in the United States, own Venezuela debt. It accounts for nearly 2% of the benchmark
7: broad emerging markets. Well, not anymore. It actually only accounts for 90 basis points of the oh, benchmark okay. index. and that's. But you're right. Yesterday, it was 1.4%. On Friday, it was 2%. So they're plummeting. The market value of these bonds are definitely plummeting. I mean, the yield, the average yield for Venezuela debt went from something like 30% on Friday, close of business, to over 40%. Uh, I think last night was the last time I. I checked. So the numbers are just off the charts.
2: So who's solidifying their losses right now?
7: So, you know, in terms of fund, uh, I mean, look, we can only capture fund filings, right? So they're a little bit dated. You know, we're looking at stuff, you know, in arrears. But for the most part, uh, fund holdings in Venezuela and Petavesa Debt, which is the, the oil and gas company that is effectively a quasi-sovereign, it is effectively an extension of the government. You're talking about um, BlackRock, Goldman Sachs, Ashmore, T. Rowe Price, GMO. Those are the big fund families that are holding that debt. Um, And, you know, effectively, in the case of BlackRock, you know, passive investors like the BlackRock iShares ETF, it's really, it's not a very big position within the index, but, and the index is up, I think, or I'm sorry, the ETF is up something on the order of 9% year to date. And I think negative attribution from Venezuela alone is something on the order of 140 basis points of that. So yeah, no, it's had an impact. But it's now at if it's only ninety basis points of the index. That's your floor. You can't really lose any more than that, technically, right? So, so the impact on broader emerging markets is going to be constrained to that point.
1: Damien, uh, Venezuela is already overdue on interest payments for debt that is due in twenty nineteen. 2024 2025 2026 right i mean <laughs> yeah. they they've, they've got foreign currency reserves but it's like what about 10 billion dollars yeah and i understand that most of that is in gold
7: um well you know we don't actually know what the central bank of venezuela is doing when they're calculating their reserves to okay. be completely honest with you but the reality is you're absolutely right i mean you know they've got um, roughly sixty billion plus in loans that they received from the China Development Bank and China Exim, and we looked at that because that's those, where I wanted you to go. Yeah, I want those you to tell issuers, us about China and those, Russia, and, and Russia and Rosneft, right? So, so first, starting with China, the big um, government agencies, the big uh, government lenders lent sixty billion over the better part since two thousand whatever, call it the mid two thousands, to Venezuela, and. Those loans are outstanding. We don't know how much of those loans are outstanding. We don't know what assets were pledged against those loans. We don't really know much about them, and we don't know their seniority. And I, I think creditors don't know where they stack, uh, you know, where they stack up relative to China. Yeah. Well, so
2: I, here's what I don't understand. Okay, so basically Venezuela is all but guaranteeing itself a default at this point. Why has this been something that Maduro has avoided for so long and when people were saying this could lead to regime well, change and now it's not there's been
7: a there's been a lot of speculation on that. You've just hit the nail on the head. I mean everyone had kind of been playing this game where the next the next principle, you know, the next bond that was set to mature, you know, you wanna you know you're hoping that they're going to make payment on that. If they do, it's a home run. If they don't, we're in the situation we are now. And many people felt that Maduro was paying back the people that helped him secure his power base initially by telling them to get long those bonds effectively. And I'm going to make you whole. That's the way I'm going to be able to pay you back because I, quite frankly, can't pay you back any other way because I'm sanctioned by everybody else. And so that's the speculation that's been out there. There's no way to prove it. But certainly that's, that's, that's been kind of you know, what we've been like focused on. Um, But yeah, no, I mean, China, Russia, I mean, you just, again, creditors don't really know where they stack up, and that's the mystery. Thanks very much for helping
1: to dispel at least some of that mystery. Damian Sassauer, a fixed income strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence.
2: have a focus on fixed income, which is brought to you by PIMCO for investors who demand more than the markets deliver. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Consult your investment professional before investing. And if you want to invest in the European bond markets, and it's important to listen to what what Simon Ballard has to say, he's our global credit strategist for Bloomberg, and he comes to us from London. Simon, you know today I'm watching the uh, gap in yields between Italian ten-year and German ten-year government bonds. It has shrunk to the narrowest this year. Why is Italy so much better in terms of economic outlook? I mean, still their banking system has some challenges. Can you explain the dynamic right now uh, Absol- that's sort of driving this?
6: Yeah, no, absolutely, Lisa. Good afternoon. It's a it's a great question. But yes, that is one of the one of the trends that we've seen not only with Italy but with with peripheral, with higher yielding risk generally over the course of the last couple of years has been the the compression towards the the core risk towards Germany um, as as investors have chased yield um, in what is still, you know, a very low interest rate environment, and what will remain a low interest rate environment. So, yes, you know, the, there has been a compression in, in, in Italian spreads over Germany. Has the fundamental picture in, in Italy improved to that extent? No, it has not. It is a function of the underlying liquidity in the market. And therein lies probably one of the risks for investors going forward that as that spread compression continues – and yields continue to, to, to fall, investors are increasingly sort of not being compensated, should we say, for the risk they're taking on board, but they are obliged, for want of a better term, to to, to buy into higher yielding, in inverted commerce, uh, risk, the, the lower quality uh, issuance, in order to just get a little bit of incremental yield over Germany. So yes, you've seen a compression with, with, with Italy, You've seen a compression with, uh, with, with Spain and with Portugal and to a certain extent with Greece, although probably more question marks with Greece uh, going forward. Um, so, yes, it's, it's not a story about improving or dramatically improving uh, fundamental stories within Italy. It's more the, the chase for yield exacerbated by the ECB's um, asset purchase program.
1: Well, well, Simon, I wonder if you could just help me out here to understand that, you know, it seems as though we use a lot of this information to describe what happens to a constituency that, as you just used this word, is obligated, is obliged to buy. So if you have captive buyers, what's the difference what the price is? And if you have a ready audience and you know that there is a backstop well, if you're the issuer, of course, you don't want to uh, you don't want to pay you don't want to uh, end up uh, having your debts uh, you know paid in in higher interest paper. so no. it, it seems as though if you have this obligated buyer, then all of the information is window dressing because they've got to spend the money on these
6: specific kinds of bonds. Well, to a certain extent, that's correct. And that's been one of the reasons why you've seen you know, such a dramatic compression trade in, in, in yields and spreads within the fixed income market over the last couple of years, because investors have increasingly sort of wanted to replicate what the central banks are doing. And the Fed has been doing the asset purchase program on your side of the Atlantic at right. the same time, of course. And they want to be on the same side of the trade as, Central banks. That is one of the reasons why liquidity within the secondary market is poor, because investors do not want to sell their existing holdings in order to try and buy, you know, new issues or or, or, um, or, or, or new bond deals, should I say, because they'll probably get crowded out and won't get completely reinvested, and that just again pushes yields and spreads, you know, further and further into uh, into towards negative territory in Europe. Simon,
2: there was a column in the Financial Times today that caught my attention, because you you mentioned uh, the European Central Bank Asset Purchase Program. In the past nine months, the European Central Bank has actually purchased a disproportionate amount of French and Italian bonds. And I just wonder, from a political standpoint, uh, this comes at the expense of German bonds. This alone could be what's driving the dynamic of the the tightening yield gap uh, with peripheral debt versus German uh, government boons. I'm just wondering, politically, how does this fly?
6: Well, politically, you know, the ECB's asset purchase program there is there to stand behind the eurozone economy and try to inject, you know, recovery um, into the economic growth dynamics. And, and to a certain extent, it, it has done that at, at some cost. One might add over the uh, over the last year or so since the uh, since the corporate bond program was uh, was initiated in June two thousand and sixteen. Uh, yes, they've been buying disproportionately, perhaps. Um, I haven't uh, haven't uh, got access, of course, to the Financial Times's uh, analysis. But from what we see, you know, the 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 utilities sector is the largest sector of holdings within the ECB's uh, purchase programme. They've got about 272 utilities deals, but those are spread broadly, you know, across the eurozone. But you know, the ECB will be buying the areas of the market where it believes it needs to, one, add support, and more importantly, where it can find liquid assets to purchase. Because of course, the more it buys, the more investors chase the ECB and want to be on the same side as the trade, the, the fewer the bonds there are to, um, to for, for, for everybody to buy. So they're, they're, t- they're chasing liquidity, but also chasing the of what they what they've set out to do um, with the program in the first instance. So yes, disproportionately probably looking at peripherals, but that's not to say that they're not buying core uh, eurozone bonds as well.
1: Uh, Simon, I, I confess I don't know whether there is the same term uh, in the UK or in Europe, but we have this term. It's called the open book test, right? Where you're basically are yep. given the answers to whatever the test is, whatever the test questions are, and you just have to go out and find the answers because it's available to everyone. That's kind of the way it sounds in terms of the, of this marketplace. If it's if if that's true then uh, don't you see a lot more American companies like, uh, I don't know, uh, Whirlpool, for example, uh, borrowing in the European markets because they can take advantage of your version
6: of the open book test, absolutely. The open book test from my uh, my, my my time living in the states, I'm very familiar with. Um, but yes, you know, from a certain to a certain extent, it is an issuer's paradise at these sort of levels. Particularly in Europe, we had the UK today um, issuing bonds at a minus one point five percent yield. The investors buying that obviously have to have a conviction about the need for capital preservation. But from a general issuer's perspective. Yes, in Europe at these sort of yields, it is a funding boon at the moment. Um, And I'm sure we'll we'll continue to see more overseas issuers coming to the European market over the coming months.
1: Thank you very much. Simon Ballard, our global credit strategist for Bloomberg, joining us from London.
2: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L podcast.
1: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
2: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like